The word insidious is an adjective derived from the Latin root insideo, which means to lie in wait. Insidious, therefore, means sly or treacherous or deceitful. So to call somebody insidious means somebody who watches and waits for an opportunity to ensnare or entrap somebody. Now, you should know something about me. I hate opening up sermons with a definition because I feel like that's how every speech has ever begun. Webster's Dictionary defines insidious. So to make up for what I just did, let me give you a more graphic illustration here. The cobra lily is insidious. This is a plant found only in the marshy areas of California and parts of Oregon. It's part of a family of plants called pitcher plants. While a cobra lily will get energy from sunlight through photosynthesis like any other plant, it gets nutrients through the digestion of insects. It is a carnivorous plant. And it gets its nickname, the cobra lily, its real name is the Darlingtonia californica, Sounds like a made-up name, doesn't it? But anyway, the cobra lily gets its nickname because its appearance. It resembles, if you look at it, a hooded cobra. And it's got two fangs or leaves that hang down from the bulbous head. And what these leaves do is they secrete nectar, really sweet nectar. And it attracts flies and other bugs to come and eat. And when they taste that, they fly up into the hood trying to find more. But the skin of the cobra lily is mottled. So it lets sunlight through in these little patches in its, I guess you'd call it its skin. So when the insect tries to fly away, it looks as though there are multiple exits because light is coming through many different places. So they dart around like bugs do trying to get out, but they can't find that tiny little hole that they first came in. So eventually they will fly or fall down the stem of the cobra lily, which is hollow. And there are these downward-facing rigid fibers that prevent it from going up. So once it goes down, it can only keep going down. And it plunges down to the base of the stalk, where the cobra lily secretes acidic enzymes that digest the bug alive until it is liquid enough to be absorbed into the walls of the plant. Sly treacherous and deceitful, lying in wait patiently for an opportunity to ensnare its victims. The cobra lily is insidious. And I told you I don't like using definitions as an introduction, but I think it was appropriate tonight because tonight we're talking about words, language, speech, conversation. What does the Bible have to say about what we ought to say? Now, with that in mind, you might think that an illustration about a carnivorous plant, a little extreme. You're like, if you've got a story like that, you ought to save that for drug addiction. <laughs> save that for something on sexual immorality, something intense. But this is exactly the point I want to make tonight. God told Cain when he was angry with Abel, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you or against you. But you must rule over it, Genesis 4, 7. The moment we start to minimize sin, any sin, you're being lured onto the sweet leaves of a cobra lily. Over the past several years, I guess many years now, there's been a rapid increase in the acceptance of profanity and other foul language in the church. There are entire ministries that I will not name that have sprung up using the fact that they curse and use foul language as their brand. Certain preachers have gained a reputation as cussing pastors in order to draw new believers in by being real or being relevant. This is largely driven by the younger set in the church. And if you try to correct them, and I have, you're usually laughed off. So this then trickles down from the ranks of pastors and public speakers to the lives of everyday Christians. And we've all seen this, that we will roll our eyes or kind of wink when we talk of constraints on language, that they're tedious and they're outdated, and does the Bible really say that? Especially when it comes to humor, especially when it comes to moments of passion. Clean speech is hardly a priority in the church anymore, it seems. And those who bother to give arguments in favor of that kind of language often sound very spiritual. They say things like, every word should be redeemed for Jesus. Or since words are cultural, and we don't obey the rules of men, so we can do whatever we want. And some people say, well, I know that cursing is wrong, but it can be used in service of a greater good, like confession with intensity or evangelism. For example, a uh, 
Christian musician of sorts, not really a musician, but he travels with musicians, called Levi the Poet, who is kind of a friend of mine. He gave a blog post one Easter about the resurrection, and the title was F. Death, except to use the whole word. And he quoted, this is his quote here, Some words are more alive than others. The ones we never use are the ones that are the loudest. Some words shake people out of complacency or give voice to the pain or personalize the swell of emotions in a statement that finally captures them in the air. There is an entire world of people out there who need to hear things spoken to them unencumbered by cultural offenses. Well, that could be very inspiring. That could even, taken in a certain sense, be edifying. And I had a personal conversation with Levi about this. And he brought up the fact that, well, people need to have freedom in counseling, or we've got to avoid legalism about words. And he gave an example of how this sort of thing has enabled people to deepen their walk with Christ through greater intimacy and freedom. And to his credit, Levi did not dismiss this conversation. Like, he agreed that's something we needed to talk about. Uh, I had kind of called him out on this a little bit. But what I said to him is what I say to us now. All that sounds great, but what does God say? You can see how very quickly this conversation becomes bogged down in matters of opinion or culture. How fast we begin to compare the ends rather than the means. We use terms like conviction or liberty or interpretation. But for a Christian, ethical issues cannot be decided by preference. Our society is permissive, amen, and proud of it. The only virtue both sides seem to consistently cherish of any debate is that of pushing the boundaries. We sometimes disagree about which boundaries to push, but everybody's on board with that, it seems. Now, we cannot entirely help being products of our time and place, but you've got to be on the lookout for the intrusion of culture into religion. Never let the world tell you how a Christian ought to behave. Opinions are meaningless. I'm not interested in arguments. I only care if God has spoken. And if he has... And we need to listen to what he has to say. Look at how Jesus lived. Jesus' speech was controlled by the will of God. John 8, 38, Jesus said, I speak what I have seen with my Father. I should think that at the very least, we can agree on the fact that God is the final authority in all matters of Christian living. So to that end, tonight, we're going to look at what the Bible has to say, what God has to say about what we ought to say. And the question at hand here is, is this a moral issue? Is speech a matter of ethical concern? And if that's how God views it, then we've got to apply that to our own lives. And if we are truly disciples of Jesus Christ, we must obey what he has to say. So as long as we've opened the doors of definitions, we ought to start by precisely identifying what we're talking about. And I might seem like I'm looping around here, but we're going to bring this back because the things I'm about to say Maybe th things you've read or thought of before, but never quite applied to yourself. What is the concept of language? Speech and conversation are really nothing less than miracles when you think about it. Consider you. What are you? You're a body, but that's not all that you are, obviously. There's something inside of you. You, you really, it feels like you're using your body. You can cut off an arm and you're still you. The real you, if you want to call it that, your soul, lives somewhere inside now inside you, inside of your head, if you want to call it that, there are these things called thoughts. They're abstract. That is, they don't have form, they don't have shape, they don't have substance. If you've ever stammered trying to explain what you're thinking, you understand this. But they exist. All alone, you still have your thoughts. There's still activity going on. And your body is this incredibly complex thing that God made, which allows you to execute the thoughts in your head. You think about how fun it would be to jump on these chairs from one row to the next, from one row to the next. But until you actually do it, then you haven't actually done it. You're just thinking about it. Your body is indivisibly tied to your soul. Your internal thoughts are influenced by your physical experiences and desires. We get hungry, and then we eat. We have to use the bathroom, so we go. We get cold, we put on a jacket. So you are soul, but you are also body. Now let's expand this out further. You are not the only soul-body combination out there. There are billions of them experiencing reality through their bodies all around you. Now imagine if one day you see another soul-body walking around and your thoughts start to wonder, what are the thoughts like in that person's head? Or maybe you see somebody laugh and you start to wonder, what? What's so funny? How would you go about accomplishing that? This is so basic, but think about this. How am I to know what is going on in your head? 
Well, the task there is what we call communication. Taking your thoughts and expressing them to somebody else. Now, you could try and wave your arms around and play an elaborate game of charades to communicate, but that would really limit your mind, wouldn't it? Really limits the amount of things you're able to express. So, for example, how are you going to play charades and you imagine you're given a word like monetary inflation. You're like, uh, <laughs> you can't use words, you've just got to explain it. How do you sign, or the concept of reincarnation, for example? Well, the answer is so basic that we don't even marvel at it anymore. In your body, you have lungs, a vocal cords, a mouth, and tongue. By expelling air over your vocal cords, they vibrate and they make a sound, which you shape by your mouth and your teeth and your lips. And we call that speech. And these speeches organized into families called languages, which determine which mouth sounds correspond to which thoughts. And you break those sounds into smaller chunks called words, and we use them. And they give the ability to your soul, through the use of your body, to explain what's going on inside your head. And through the use of your ears, I'm not going to get too detailed into that, but you hear. You can decipher the sounds coming out of somebody else's mouth and know what's going on in their soul. And according to the Bible, language was gifted to man at the very beginning. Just try, if you ever want to take the time to see what, what atheists or what have you will try to explain where language came from. It's not very convincing. The Bible just tells us that God spoke to Adam and Adam understood him. The multiplicity of languages is, is explained in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, where God confused them. We have something called proto-languages. There are perhaps as few as three original languages from which all other languages have sprung. Isn't that fascinating? So then communication was ordained by God from the very beginning. He intended us to be able to speak and communicate to each other. Why? Why would God do that? The best description we can give is that speech is revelation. When you speak, you are revealing who you are. If you were to remain silent your entire life, of course, leaving out things like writing and sign language and that sort of thing, but if you were to remain silent your life, no one would know a thing about you. Consider Stephen Hawking. He was a brilliant scientist, but he had Lou Gehrig's disease. He was all but completely paralyzed. He was confined to his chair for years. Yet because he had that voice synthesizer, he was still able to lecture and publish and study. If he had been able, unable to speak, he might have been having these brilliant thoughts and solving all these mathematical problems, but nobody would ever know about it. If you were unable to speak, he could never have revealed those things. Speech is self-revelation. And this is exactly what Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. God created us to reveal ourselves to one another and to receive revelation from him and speak to him. So when we understand that, that is a theological understanding of conversation, all of a sudden your words take on a new level of sobriety and even sanctity that you might never have considered before. When we talk about revelation, we usually think of God revealing himself, which is very telling, isn't it? There are those that will say, how can you presume to know anything about God? Even if God is real, how can you know anything about him? He's so other, he's so different from us. Well, the simple answer is communication. God spoke. And because God has spoken, we know what he's like. One of the very first things we see God doing in Scripture is speaking. God said, let there be light, and there was light, Genesis 1.6. He speaks all of creation into existence. He gives names to things. Psalm 33, verse 6 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Well, that opens up a whole new world to think about. If God spoke the world into existence and speech is an act of revelation, that means that creation itself is an expression of God's heart. Isn't that cool? If you've ever read the Silmarillion before, J.R.R. Tolkien described creation as a song that was being sung. And there's perhaps more truth to that than metaphor when you consider it. If that's true, then by studying the world, we ought to be able to learn things about God. This is what we call general revelation. Men like Thomas Aquinas, for example, made a lot of, uh, of hay out of that idea. If God made the world by speaking it into existence, then through its continued existence, it continues to speak. 
That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 19, 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. And night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone throughout the earth and their words to the end of the world. So we can learn about God from the world as it is. I'll give you just a couple of examples. We can learn that God is eternal. In order to speak, you have to exist before your words. So God must exist outside of his creation. We can learn that he's powerful. If he's able to make all that exists, then his power must be infinite. We know that he's creative by looking at the beauty of the world. We learn that he's all knowledge because all knowledge is just part of the word that he's spoken. We can even learn about God's goodness by the conscience that resides in each of us. Romans 1.20 says, Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. And of course, the more details we receive about creation, for example, how unique we are created in God's image, the more we learn about God, the more revelation we receive. But of course, general revelation can only take us so far. It's kind of like secondhand speech. It's reliable, but it's not complete. It's also capable of being corrupted. So a pagan can understand a few things about God, but it's usually a caricaturized understanding of God. What we need is a direct line of communication from heaven. We need the conversation to keep going rather than just look at the world. We need more words. And that's exactly what God gave us in the text of Scripture, didn't he? What we call the Bible, which what does Bible mean? You know this one? Book. You learned something today. Bible means book. It's actually a collection of 66 different books compiled into what we recognize as the canon today. The written records of God's words. There's history, there's poetry and prophecy, there's a little philosophy in there, there's biography, there's letters and songs. And all of these writings were composed by men, but we affirm that they're more than the words of men. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That includes the Greek word theopneustos. Theos and pneuma, God breathed. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.21, Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Moved, that word is pheromenoi, means carried along by the Spirit. So when they wrote down their words, God breathed life into them and carried them along so that what they were writing were his words as well. And we know this because in John 10.27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and I follow them. That's how we recognize the scriptures that we have. So if the Bible is truly the word of God, then the scriptures are a further revelation of God because speech is revelation. God is speaking to us in the written word. What a treasure that is. Psalm 119, which is all about the word of God. I'll just read verses 103 and 105. He said, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So if speech is the communication of soul from one person to another, then the Bible reveals to us the heart of God. Special revelation is what we call that. General revelation is available to everybody in nature, etc. But special revelation is only available in one place, namely the Bible. The Bible is the final word as far as we are concerned. This is where you check your conclusions from nature and from conscience and logic, and, and you make sure whether you're right or not. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So, without getting off into that, we need to know what it says. <laughs> we need to study it, right? So we've seen the general revelation of God in creation, his spoken word. We've seen the special revelation in scripture, the written word that he inspired. And there's one further way that God has spoken to us, the other way he's revealed himself to us, which I'm going to coin a term here, I call this ultimate revelation. John 1, verse 1 and then verse 14 say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Jesus Christ, in the Gospel of John, is called the Word, the Logos of God. So knowing what we know about words and how they are significant as revelation, that title is incredibly profound, isn't it? Jesus is called the Word. He's identified there as God, the Creator, eternal. So this is the God of Genesis here, yet distinct in a very Trinitarian sense. He is the light that shines in the darkness to give light to men. Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. Hebrews chapter 1 says, God at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, but as in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things. Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of God, the personal word of God. To know Christ is to know God. Jesus said in John 14, 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Creation gives us generalities. Scripture gives us specificities. Jesus gives us intimacy and personality. A huge part of Jesus' ministry was correcting misconceptions about God, wasn't it? Coming around and correcting their misunderstandings. Something he still does. His death and his resurrection and his ascension and his imminent return speak volumes about the God that we could not know on our own. So are you starting to see the importance of words now? Words reveal who we are. If God had remained silent, we would never have been able to know anything about him. We would have wandered in darkness. So to say that God is a self-revealing God is to say that he is a God who speaks Speech is revelation, so that when God provided his ultimate revelation in his son, he called him the word. And if God's word is his revelation, your words are your revelation. Your words, your speech show the world who you really are. Remember, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever's in your heart will come out in how you speak. Sometimes much to our chagrin, but there you go. Already, I think we can start to see the ethical implications here. If you're going to live a life as a liar that isn't revealing who you are, that's wrong. If you're going to allow your speech to reveal sin in your heart, that's also wrong. It's a weighty topic. So let's look at what the Bible has to say about this then. It shouldn't surprise you that the Bible has an awful lot to say about talking. Communication is how we interact as people. So it stands to reason that God has a few suggestions. Shall we say strong suggestions? If conversation is an ethical issue, how does the Bible guide us? And I will say there's far too much for us to get into in just one night. But we'll look at a few main through lines we see in the Bible. And the first one we need to learn is especially important because Western society has been the most innovative culture in the realm of words and expression that has ever been seen. We invented the printing press, which revolutionized communication. Now the word could be written and distributed widely. But then you've got the internet. Now you don't even need anything physical to get your words around the world. Now, never mind speaking, we can Skype, tweet, post, blog, upload, and chat with people that we never would have been able to meet a few decades ago. Communication has exploded. But according to the Bible, that innovation in communication also represents an increase in opportunity for sin. Here's our first principle. We need to speak less. James 1, verses 19 through 20. James had an awful lot to say about talking. He said, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. As Christians, our first proclivity ought to be to listen, not to speak. Most of us agree with that in theory and then kind of laugh it off, as if that excuses us. Especially in the age of the internet, it is much easier to speak quickly than to listen intently. And since, therefore, we live in an age of greater temptation, we need to be men and women of greater discipline in this area. There's value in silence. And talking should not be our default reaction to any and all stimuli. Consider the book of Proverbs. The wisest man, King Solomon, who ever lived, and he has, an, ironically enough, an awful lot to say about the virtue of silence. 
Proverbs 10, 19. In a multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs 17, 27. He who has knowledge spares his words, and the man of understanding is of a calm spirit. Proverbs 29, 11. A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. So much for I was just venting, huh? Here's an interesting example. St. Benedict of Nursia was a monk, devout Christian, sought by other young people who wanted to learn from his example. And he wrote a, a book, basically a handbook, called The Rule of Benedict. And this is where that, that, that vow of silence thing first came about. And let's look at what he had to say this. This is such a fascinating quote to me. He said, let us act in conformity with that saying of the prophet, I said I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I have put a bridle on my mouth. I was dumb and was humbled and kept silent from good things. Here the prophet shows that if we ought at times for the sake of silence to refrain even from good words, much more ought we to abstain from evil words on account of the punishment due to sin. Therefore, on account of the importance of silence, let permission to speak be rarely given even to the perfect disciples. Even though their words be good and holy and conducive to edification, it is written, in the multitude of words there shall not want sin. And elsewhere, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now immediately we react to that. Oh, legalism. All right, first thing though, if you ever read the rule of Benedict, at the very beginning, he makes it very clear, I am not trying to establish something for all Christians. This is something for me and my crew, and we are so full of sin, we need extra help. So he comes at this with a very humble attitude, whatever may have come of it later. Secondly, rather than scoffing at one man's attempt to be obedient, maybe we ought to take a look in the mirror. If we have such disdain for this guy, surely we have a better idea, right? How are you making sure to obey the commandment not to multiply your words? Donald Whitney said, many of us need to realize the addiction we have to noise. In our day and age, silence is usually preceded by the word awkward. It's not just silence, it's awkward silence. We feel the need to fill the gap with words, but sometimes you've got to take a step back. Because your words are your self-revelation. And the Bible urges you to be deliberate with what you say. That's the first principle. Speak less, not more. Ecclesiastes 5.2, Solomon again, says, Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you on earth, therefore let your words be few. So now that we're not talking as much, we have time to think exactly about what we're going to say. The next principle the Bible gives us is an obvious one, and that is, we, that is that we, number two, need to speak the truth. Jesus prayed on the night of his betrayal, John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The word of God is truth. God himself is truth. God revealed himself to Moses as I am. And that name reveals to us that God is self-existent, meaning he is all that ever existed on its own. And anything that exists other than God only exists because of God. So because of that, he by definition is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And John 18, 37, Jesus told Pontius Pilate, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. To lie is to give a false revelation of yourself. That's why Titus tells us that God cannot lie. God only ever reveals himself because he is. There's nothing outside of him that he could speak about except that which had come from him. So the definition of a lie is that which is in opposition to God. The devil is called the father of lies in John 8, because he has chosen to reject God, to reject reality and fashion his own. And of course, from the Ten Commandments and before, Lying has been prohibited by God explicitly. Ephesians 4.25 says, Putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Giving a false revelation of yourself is to introduce untruth into the soul of somebody else. God would never do that to you. And you would resent it coming from someone else. Do you like it when people lie to you? How about the government? you like it when the government lies to you? 
How about your insurance company? Like it when they lie to you? Don't do that. Liars are distrusted everywhere, and with good reason. Of course, we immediately want to justify ourselves. I'm only lying to prevent conflict or to, to do something good in the future. Listen to me. Lies will destroy your career, your marriage, your finances. Untruth is destructive. It'll bury you. You might be willing to say every calamity that has ever struck the world because of men has been because of lies. There's a lie somewhere in there. Short version of it is you need to tell the truth. Everything you say should be an accurate reflection of yourself and of God. Like Jesus, John 14, 6, I am the truth. Speak less, and when you do speak, speak only the truth. The next two principles cover not so much the content of what we say as much as the intent behind it. Ephesians 4.29 tells us, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. The construction of the Greek here draws a very deep distinction. And so I'm just going to translate this the way the Greek sentence is structured. Every corrupt word you must not let proceed from your mouth. Instead, only speak what is good for edification. I like that. Only speak what is good. And don't let corrupt words out of your mouth. Categorical verse, drawing the lines in very tight, that everything we speak must bring edification and impart grace. So that's the first thing, or the third in our list here. Speak edification. That word edify comes from the Greek word oikoname, literally house building or house law, you might say. When we say edification, you can hear the word edifice in there. An edifice is something you build. The word for build in Spanish is edificio, right? We edify an edifice, so we build a building. So applying that to the church, everything you say should be building up your brothers and sisters. Everything should be an overflow of grace. Your speech should be an expression of the favor of God that either brings the unbeliever closer to salvation or the Christian into a deeper relationship with Christ. That your speech should be a means of grace. We talk an awful lot about the uh, sacraments. Is this a means of grace? Is this not? I can tell you what should be. Your words. Let it always be full of grace. The boundaries of your speech ought to be limited to that which is edifying. It's not to say you can only talk about God with other people, but Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. Rather than wondering about what kinds of speech we ought to eliminate, let's start from a foundation of edification and then only add that which is going to be beneficial to those who hear. Your communication can introduce new thoughts and ideas to other people. So you should only be speaking that which can channel the grace of God. That's the horizontal principle. But there's another vertical principle from that verse in Ephesians that determines the content of our speech. To another, we speak only edification. Our fourth thing here is we speak only worship. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Again, a categorical commandment. Everything you say should be allowed to be preceded by, in the name of the Lord Jesus, I say to you. And if you can't tack that on, slow down. And we can scoff at that. We can say that's impossible, it's impractical, it's puritanical. Well, either the Bible is your authority or it's not, friend. And here we're told that every word we speak should be done in the name of Jesus as an act of worship. Now, worship, of course, includes singing, but it's not limited to that. It includes evangelism, exhortation, prophecy, rebuke, prayer, praise. More broadly, the question you ask is, can this speech be offered to God? When you're texting your girlfriend, when you're playing Xbox Live, when your kids walk out of the room, when it's just you and your buddies, are you saying everything in the name of Jesus? That sounds extreme, but Romans 14, 23 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, there's much more the Bible has to say about speech, but these are some foundational principles that can apply to everybody. Number one, speak less. You should listen more than you talk. Number two, speak truth. Only ever speak what is true. Number three, when you do speak, it should impart grace and edification to those around you. And number four, every word should be glorifying to God. 
you can see that the Bible at least regards speech as a moral issue. And God in his word, through his speech, his self-revelation, has delineated what is and is not acceptable speech for his people. And I know that the narrowness of these principles is kind of strange. It's strange to me. But we need to remember that as history's most talkative generation, we are weak in this area, and we ought to be taking more precautions, not fewer. So if we're going to have a conversation about conversation, whatever side of the issue you're going to stand on needs to be able to incorporate those four principles we just looked at. They're non-negotiable. They apply to everybody. Already it's becoming clear that at least our language cannot be flippant. And for a Christian, as always, the road is even more narrow. Let's ask this question now. How does our salvation affect our speech? We talked about what speech is and how God demonstrates what speech is. It's a weighty thing. We've looked at what the Bible has to say in generalities about what should be said and got some really good principles. But for a Christian, remember, it's a narrow road. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So that means if you are saved, your speech cannot be like everybody's else, everybody else's. Scripture is replete with calls to new depths of holiness. Ephesians 4, 22-24. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off the old way of talking and put on the new one. And Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Put it real plainly, don't be like them, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and I might add, by your mouth that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The point of those three verses, the gospel does impact your life and your behavior. And that, of course, applies to your speech. We ought to put off old conversation and be renewed in speech created after the likeness of God. Your tongue as a living sacrifice. How does that work? How does salvation directly affect your speech? We're going to look at the two aspects of salvation that we experience in the here and now. First is justification. Justification is the declaration of God that you are saved. We just went through Romans. We know about this. It's the initial moment of the new birth. It's when you first get saved. Baptism is the picture of justification. Dead to the old life, alive to the new one. And how does this relate to our speech? Well, first of all, speech is the method that God has chosen to spread the gospel. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Romans 10, 14. God could have used any number of methods to communicate his gospel, but he used talking, preaching, the words of people like you and me. Second, the act of salvation is to be accompanied and sealed by the words of the one who's converting. If you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10, 9 and 10. We know we're saved by faith alone, but scripture ties that faith to a public vocal profession. Jesus said in Matthew 10, whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, why is that moment of confession so important? Because remember, speech is self-revelation. You might believe something on the inside, but by speaking it out, you reveal it to the world. In baptism, you make a public identification with Christ. And the Lord tells us, apart from that proclamation, that confession, there is no salvation. In Revelation 12, it says that the saints overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And the third connection between conversation and justification is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ indwells and empowers us when we're saved. He brings us gifts so that we might impart grace to the church. And so many of the Spirit's gifts are related to talking, teaching, prophecy, encouragement, 
exhortation. When the Spirit comes in, He puts new words in your mouth to serve and to praise Him. In fact, when Paul is discussing kind words and honesty and telling the truth, he says to fail to do so is to grieve the Spirit of God. Consider also that the day the Spirit came, the sign of His presence was a tongue of fire resting upon each believer in the upper room. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The first thing the Holy Spirit empowered the church to do was speak. The seal of the Spirit of God through justification is marked by renewed speech. So the work of the cross is accomplished and characterized by the words of life. Also, the second aspect of salvation we experience now is sanctification. We're awaiting the third one, which is glorification. But as the Spirit dwells within us, He spends the remaining years of our life making us more like Christ. He changes us from the inside out and making our hearts more like that of Jesus. John 15, 2 says, Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Meaning, he cuts stuff off so that you can be, live better. Sanctification directly affects your speech. Sanctification is more like communion, where you're regularly partaking of the body and blood of Christ, reminding us for that daily need of sustaining work. And in the same way, you need the Spirit to daily renew and restore your language. But the Bible tells us that the tongue is notoriously difficult to sanctify. Learning to control your desire to kill is easier than learning to speak respectfully to everyone. Even difficult things like sexual immorality will see more victory in the average Christian's life than speech because we pay it more attention. We're looking for it. But it's easier to neglect the insidious nature of talking. I don't have time to read the whole passage, but James chapter 3 says that if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. If you want to be perfect, don't ever say anything wrong ever again. You're like, well, so much for that. And now the thing is, James had a bit of a smart mouth. In John chapter 7, he mouths off to Jesus, and depending on how you read that story, he might have even kicked Jesus and Mary out of the house. Now, he had that blue-collar background. He was a carpenter, just like Jesus. But he doesn't make excuses. When he writes his letter, he spends a long time telling us to watch your words. You probably know this before. You ever opened your mouth and said something and regretted it immediately? I'm not talking about like later, but like the second you say, oh, man. Maybe you posted something online and you go, where's that delete button? Of all the areas the Bible talks about sanctifying, it's the tongue that receives the award for special difficulty. And this is what I think is behind a lot of that push to approve coarse speech in the church. People say that since speech is not such a big deal, we shouldn't make a big issue out of it, and it's so hard to get it right, we shouldn't even try. But we don't do that. When the Bible tells us something's hard, we don't say, oh good, I don't have to do it. So now it means I need to direct extra attention to it. It's also a problem that it is an especially American thing to boast of being a person who speaks his mind. This is the attitude that refuses to take an insult from anybody and says whatever comes into their head. Well, you're not doing that. You're not being brave or honest or real, keeping it real, man. It's a lack of self-control. It's an insidious temptation. And as people who think very highly of our freedom of speech... When God comes in and says, my people don't have freedom of speech, we start to chafe at that. Remember what we said in Proverbs 10, 19, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. Consider how many sins are related to how you talk. Hypocrisy, lying, cursing, slander, blasphemy, perjury. James said that taming the tongue is easier than taming a sea monster. You go to SeaWorld and you watch Shamu jump up over the thing. That's amazing that we can train a whale to do that. He said it's easier to do that than to get your tongue under control. But you belong to Christ now. And we've just seen that our speech is closely tied to our salvation. So we're starting to solidify our conclusion here. Speech is self-revelation. And God instructs us to speak less, to speak truth, right? And salvation is to have a noticeable impact on your mouth. We talk different as Christians. So we're going to move into some practical things now as we apply these principles. There's some other passages in Scripture here 
that we need to see. And I want to begin, though, by engaging with the most common arguments I hear in favor of Christian cursing. I was a youth pastor for high school students. I heard these a lot, but I do not find them persuasive. And I've never met anybody who was convinced into them. Usually it seems to me that this is somebody who's trying to validate something they already do. But they can be hard to answer, so let's do that. Here's the two main things I hear. The first one, in favor of Christians using profanity or coarse jesting or whatever, appeals to the idea of culture. Words are culturally defined. And so we're not bound to culture. We can use whatever words we want since we don't have to follow the rules of men. Well, I agree with some of that, but I very much disagree with its conclusion. Because watch how this argument doubles back on itself and tries to apply a double standard. Words are arbitrary. The sounds that come out of your mouth are not inherently bad or good. If a babbling baby accidentally says a cuss word, we don't think that baby has sinned because he has no idea, right? He's making a bunch of noises. He doesn't know what they are. So here's, here's the question then. If culture determines what words means, why should a Christian care what the culture says? Here's the double back. When you say only the intent matters, and, only, and so it doesn't matter what I say, that's just not how language works. Language is how we express ourselves. The thoughts in your souls are given voice by your voice. We live in America. We speak English. The mode of our, you might call it soul speak, is English. It's like working with clay or watercolors. That's the means of communication. Other cultures use different languages. And if you say, well, language is cultural, so I don't need to obey my culture standards of language, then you've completely eroded what language means in the first place. We're not just making up what a word means. Go to court and use a word and say it doesn't matter, Your Honor. Words don't mean anything. Every bit of instruction the Bible gives us concerning language has to be filtered through culture because each language is unique to its culture. By telling you to avoid coarse speech, the only way for you to apply that is in English. Or more than that, if you speak other languages. And even if you do, it doesn't give you liberty to speak blasphemy in some other language because you're expressing your heart in a known mode of expression. Intent matters more than words, but you still are painting with the set you've been given. Lots of ethical areas are culturally defined. Modesty is cultural, for example. A native Hawaiian has a different standard of modesty than a Viking, for example. But simply identifying that the words we use are the words of men, that doesn't solve the problem. What else are you going to use? Words of geese? <laughs> it's all words of men. Oh, it's a cultural. Yeah, all language is cultural. So that doesn't answer anything. The next most common objection is that we can redeem foul language for the Lord. That was Levi's argument in his article I referenced. So, well, Paul used profanity. Maybe you've heard this one. He said he counted all his previous accomplishments as rubbish or dung. The Greek word there is skubala. And that word does describe sewage and refuse. But let me say, as one who has spent time studying the Greek and actually wrote a paper on this word, it's not profanity. We know the definition of this word. We don't have any indications that it was a taboo word. And because Paul told us elsewhere not to use profanity, I think it's safe to say that this word was not profanity. Now, is it possible to redeem foul things for God's glory? In one sense, yes. But you need to make sure you get this right. God redeems all things for his glory. But by that, he restores broken things to their proper use. God does not redeem rape for his glory. He restores the sex drive to its normal, healthy state and establishes proper parameters. In the same way, God does not redeem and use bad words for his glory. He redeems the tongue and reestablishes its proper function. In that me this case, it would mean assigning new, better words to a redeemed tongue. When a toilet is overflowing with scubala, you do not try and find a new use for what's coming out of it. You fix the toilet. You restore it to its proper function and establish its previous authority to flush down, not up. The plumber is not limiting the toilet's freedom of expression by fixing it. He is giving it the power to be a true, sanctified toilet as its creator intended. So when garbage comes out of your mouth, don't tell me that you're going to use the garbage for God's glory. 
things and sound good at first. What they boil down to is an attempt to be permissive and carnal. I cannot imagine anybody reading the Bible on their own without any preconceptions and coming to the conclusion that they are allowed to swear and curse. That is the kind of insight you can only get through presupposition and peer pressure. So then how do we use our words? What's acceptable? What jokes? What texts does God approve? We're reviewing our principles. We speak less. We speak the truth. We speak edification. We speak worship. And right off the bat, that, that cuts out most of what we consider to be bad words or any kind of coarse speech. But with our last few minutes here, let's get some details. I'll just come out and say it. Profanity is a sin. Obscene, explicit, vulgar, profane. These are not descriptions that should apply to the speech of a Christian. Can you imagine implying the word profane to the words of Christ? It might be helpful to define that word swear a little bit, by the way. Swearing is the act of calling upon a higher authority to hold you to your word. In the Old Testament, they would say, as the Lord lives, in order to solidify their word. But the Bible, especially the New Testament, tells us not to do that. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Jesus instructed not to make an oath by something as if you had control over it. So using the word hell to make an oath is out, isn't it? When we swear by heaven, you're calling upon heaven to make a judgment. When you swear by your head or any other body part, you are asserting authority over your own body. But God tells us not to do that. Above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment, says James 5.12. The lesson there is that your speech ought to be simple and trustworthy. You don't need to bring shocking intensifiers to give your speech more weight, which is what a lot of our profanity is for. If you're using a word to intensify a simple statement, don't. Whether you're swearing by hell or by heaven or by God or by excrement or anything else, you're being disobedient. Now, we really don't curse by saying, as the Lord lives anymore. We use words as filler to provoke a reaction. We take things that are very serious, use them in a crass way for shock value. That should not be done either. Leviticus 10.10 says to distinguish between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean. The most egregious example of this is the name of God. Ephesians 20 verse 7 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who you takes his name in vain. What does it mean to take his name in vain? The Hebrew word is shua, meaning empty or worthless. It means to use God's name for something common or to invoke his name without it ever intending to affect you. So that common phrase, oh my God, is using the name of God like you would use any other curse word. This should not be said among us. Perhaps even more so, the name of Jesus Christ, the name above all names at which every knee will bow. The Hebrews would not even speak the name of God. They would wash their hands seven times before and after writing it down. They'd use fresh ink and a fresh quill and throw those things away after writing it. We might not have to go that far, but we can certainly learn a lesson from them. So tying these two things together, using God's name in vain and asserting authority we don't have, that encompasses most of our cuss words, doesn't it? Without even thinking, we'll call upon God to damn someone or condemn someone. That's not your authority. It's, in fact, blasphemous. It's the same thing when you tell someone to go to hell. It is a direct usurpation of the right of God to judge. You might say, oh, that's ridiculous. But if speech is self-revelation, what are you revealing about yourself by speaking that way? And now we touch on the issue of insults. Here's an area of our speech we're very uncomfortable with changing. So many of our curse words are simply extreme insults. And Jesus had very strong words for those people. He said in Matthew 5, 22, Whoever says to his brother, Raka, which means empty head, idiot, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Jesus ties the idea of hellfire to insults. 
Have you ever considered that as part of your obligation as a Christian not to insult somebody? You're insulting the image of God within them. Well, that's extreme. Well, are you saying that because you're used to it or because that's what the Bible teaches? We have a variety of insults that our culture has deemed obscene and some that they haven't. But as Christians, you shouldn't be insulting anybody. All things must be done for edification. Well, what about joking? I was just kidding when I said those things. Listen, intent does matter, right? But so often jokes are used as a cover for harmful speech. Or because we're joking, we don't give our words the appropriate amount of gravity. Ephesians 5, 3, and 4 says, Fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness or foolish talking or coarse jesting. Dirty jokes. Foolish talk. Coarse jesting. These are not fitting for saints. Neither is filthiness, which is a discussion of obscene things. Of course, we're allowed to joke as Christians. Laughter is a guilt, gift from God. But you've got to make sure your laughter is not coming from shock or embarrassment at an inappropriate topic. Sarcasm seems to be the foundation of all our humor these days. And there's a place for that. Jesus was plenty sarcastic at times. But it's a potent tool that should not be used carelessly. 1 Peter 1 and 5 says that sobriety is to be the mark of a Christian. And even beyond insult, the Ephesians passage touched on the fact that there are certain topics of discussion that he says, quote, are not fitting for Christians. Ephesians 5 says it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. It's to our shame that television or the internet or whatever has made us comfortable with speaking about the wicked works of darkness with familiarity. Shouldn't be so. The most obvious application of that is sexual talk, sensual humor, explicit references to acts that are unspeakably evil. Talking about those things is not only inappropriate, it's a gateway to accepting the behaviors that God has told us to reject. Do you think anybody would have approved of gay marriage if they had first not seen it over and over again on TV? The issue of modesty comes into play here too. 1 Corinthians 12, 23 says, Those members of the body, which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. No one in here would dare expose certain parts of their body, but we're unafraid to graphically speak about them for a laugh or even part of casual conversation. Modesty applies to your speech too. Are you covering those things which ought to be covered or are you using what is immodest to adorn your language? I'm not going to say it, of course, but the worst word, as we say in the English language, is a slang term for sexual intimacy. Let's use that as a test case here. Sex is a beautiful, sacred gift of God for the procreation of children, the promotion of love between couples, and a testimony even of the nature of God. We assign a crude word to it and then use something sacred as a filler word or to shock people into a reaction. That is the definition of profanity, of taking something sacred and profaning it, using it for common use. Don't sacrifice holiness for a joke. James 3.10 says, Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Don't use the tongue with which you glorify Christ to be dragged down into the muck of obscenity and blasphemy. And that's really what it boils down to here. It's not a matter of cussing or not cussing. It's too narrow. It's not even a matter of which words to use, although that does matter. It's the heart that is being revealed when you speak this way. Language changes. Words shift in meaning. Some words have an appropriate use and a coarse use. But your heart is what ultimately matters. So while it is good to evaluate which words are all right, and we've done some of that, what needs to be captured more is a heart that reverences God and seeks to reveal Christ within every word. I had a teacher who said, I never curse in my life, but I've God told me today that I say holy cow like somebody else uses a very different set of words, and I need to stop. I can very much appreciate her willingness to obey the Lord in that. Y'all, especially in days like this when we're fighting for free speech and we're pushing back against those that want to change and limit language, we must not overflow the banks of what God has established. 
We refuse to let any man tell us what we can or cannot say, but don't extend that same defiance to the Lord. We don't stop with the negative commandment, the commandment which says to stop cursing. That's obvious. We move on to the positive commandment that all our language should be full of grace and holiness. And that draws the boundaries pretty tight. And yet it liberates us from being beholden to any man or system of thought other than Jesus Christ and his gospel. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Are you revealing Christ with your language? may not seem like a big issue to you now, but the moment you let sin gain a foothold in your life, any sin, compromise in other areas, seems easy. I have never seen a person whose profane speech was a mark of Christian maturity. Don't be tempted by the insidious nectar of the cobra lily. You find yourself trapped in compromise, sin forcing you down deeper and deeper where you never intended to go, where it will destroy you. Don't let the world tell you what is and is not acceptable. Listen instead to the divine self-revelation of God himself. And every day, say it with the psalmist from Psalm 19:14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer.